You're listening to the Menopause Movement Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Gordon. If you haven't taken advantage of the Menopause Movement beta course yet, sign up at menopausemovement.com forward slash hormones. We offer this $500 beta course at no charge to you in exchange for feedback and testimonials. Now, we normally require a lengthy application to join the course, but because you're a podcast listener, you can skip the application, go straight to the front of the line and get started on the material. Now, if you've always wanted to understand your hormones and manage your menopause naturally, this program is definitely for you. We just simply ask for feedback and testimonials so that we can improve the course to help more women. Just go to menopausemovement.com forward slash hormones to sign up for this program so that you can start to step out of that minnow muck that has kept you stuck. This is the Menopause Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Gordon. Today, we welcome Dr. Avishkar Sabarwal to the podcast. Dr. Sabarwal is a diplomat of the American Board of Obesity Medicine, a diplomat of the American Board of Lifestyle Medicine, and he's trained in internal medicine both in the U.S. and in India. He's board certified in obesity medicine and lifestyle medicine. His focus area has always been lifestyle diseases, especially obesity. His experience in India made him profoundly interested in the effects of nutrition nutrition on health and disease. He's researched metabolic syndrome, which is often the outcome of obesity during his MD in India. Dr. Sabarwal is a member of the Obesity Medicine Association, where he's been actively involved in the Speakers Bureau Committee. He's also a member of the Lipid Association of India and has been a speaker at various webinars throughout the country, highlighting the importance of recognizing obesity and metabolic syndrome in cardiovascular health. During the podcast, we talk about his struggle with obesity personally, how residency lifestyle can lead to obesity, what he changed and his struggle with obesity, what causes obesity obesity and the role your environment plays in your weight, treatments for obesity, obesity as a disease state and not a problem of willpower, the role medication plays in helping to manage weight, weight loss surgery, what the food industry wants, and stay to the end to find out how to be successful in your own weight loss journey. At the end of the episode, make sure you visit drmichellegordon.com forward slash podcasts, where you can find the show notes plus the links to books and resources mentioned in the episode. And if you enjoy the episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you're always the first to know when each episode is released. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you haven't left a review yet, please take the time to review the podcast because this helps more women to find it, to get the help they need during the disruption of menopause because no one should have to go it alone. Thanks so much for all of the five-star reviews and thanks for being a part of the menopause movement. Now let's get to Dr. Sabarwal. Dr. Sabwal, thank you for coming to the Menopause Movement Podcast. I'm super excited to have you here. You're an obesity expert. And, you know, one of the biggest complaints that women have in menopause is why can't I lose the weight? So I'd like to, you know, if you could just get started a little bit, tell us what got you into this. You're a physician and what got you started on this? Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, uh, Michelle, on your uh, podcast. So, you know, my journey started with obesity medicine because I myself suffered from obesity. And uh, that's been the case all throughout my life. I was always on the heavier side. The usual advice that I would get would just be eat less, move more. And that was the end of it. So during my training in India in internal medicine, actually, I reached my heaviest weight. And I decided that I had to do something about it. And at that point in time, I really didn't know much about 
obesity medicine per se, different types of diets that are available, uh, what all you can do, this and that. So I basically decided I just need to change my lifestyle around, stop eating the ultra processed foods that I'm eating. And, you know, residency is stressful as it is. So once that was all taken care of, once I finished that, I was like, okay, I need to change something here. Well, you know, residency is, a medicine residency isn't as, as intense, I think, as a surgical residency because surgeons have to do trauma. But of course. What, one of the things that we used to say is that, you know, you eat when you can, you sleep when you can. Right. And I picked up this habit during residency and me medical school probably too during the last couple of years where I would just, I would shovel food into my mouth as fast as I could. And there was always this urgency, just like eat, 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 eat. Right. Did you develop that that habit as well? I mean, we were supposed to eat on the fly, right? I mean, it, it, if there's an emergency, you have to attend to that, obviously. And uh, so we had to eat on the fly. We had to eat fairly quickly. But actually, a residency in India is is still fairly rigorous compared to here. At least here, where there are you know hour limitations per week. These number of hours, there's no limitation in India. So you're working yeah. 36 hours straight, whether it's medicine, whether it's surgery, whatever. So the, my my diet was fairly crappy. And but I, once I finished that. Uh, I decided I needed to change my diet around. I needed to change my entire lifestyle around. I did that. And uh, thankfully, it worked for me. So I was able to go to a more of a whole food kind of a diet. And I started cooking everything at home pretty much. And I started exercising and I was fairly rigorous. I used to go for about two hours a day, which is probably not sustainable for everybody. It's, it's not easy to mm -hmm. carve out two hours in a day. So it worked for me. I was able to lose a lot of weight, but I did want to know what else is out there about obesity. Because even after having trained in internal medicine in India, unfortunately, obesity was not one of the, the the topics that is really talked about. We talk about other a lot of other diseases in medicine, which we treat, but obesity as a disease is really not concentrated upon. And I just happened to Google obesity medicine. I was like, let me just see what's available online. And I was really surprised that <laughs> there's, a, uh, there's a specialty obesity medicine that's out there. Well, I think that's really important, but I think it's important, I think, for us to talk about the fact that doctors, wherever they're trained, are not trained in nutrition right. and they're not trained in menopause. And, you know, this is the Menopause Movement Podcast, so I want to make sure we kind of focus towards menopause, even though sure. you're a guy. But what what is really, I think, fascinating as as I, you know, learned my own program and, and developed the minnow system and the minnowmate way of living was that I realized that there were a lot of gaps and those were intentional because the medicine that we're taught is disease management. It's not healthcare. Right. Yeah. So when you found out that obesity, you know, there was a, a obesity medicine specialty, what, what happened next? So I wanted to uh, actually explore this. Uh, and I try to reach out to people over here in the U.S. because uh, it's fairly well developed in the U.S. But they wanted me to be trained in the U.S. in internal medicine before I could do that. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, that wasn't on my plan at that point in time to kind of come to the U.S. and train all over again in medicine. But it so happened that I ended up coming to the U.S. and I got trained in medicine again. And then I thought, well, let me just uh, explore obesity medicine. And that's how I, I landed with obesity medicine. And really, it opened my eyes to the world of obesity as a disease and, and the nitty gritties that are, uh, you know, that take place in our body, that the changes that take place in our body uh, with regards to obesity. So I just want to talk for one second about your training. You went through an internal medicine residency that was three years long in India. Yeah. yeah. And you chose to come to the U.S., and did you have to take 
all the tests again, the USMLE and everything. Yes. And do the residency again, another three years. I have a real problem with that. If you're trained, I don't understand why we can't just like make sure that you're not, I don't, that you're not dangerous. What, what is the deal with America? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is what it is. I mean, I'm glad that I trained where I trained in, in the US. I mean, I got a good training over here and I'm glad that I had done my training in India because that really gave me a good base when I came to the US. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. Was there but, a big difference in the training? To some extent, I would say, I think the difference I would say probably is more so that uh, the training in, in, in the US and the disease management in the US is more investigation based. Mm. And that's because everything is mostly based on your insurance and everything is covered by the insurance. <laughs> so, but in the in India, it's different. You really have to be creative about things. You really have to understand the disease. So I would say that mm-hmm. that was probably more rigorous than my training in the US. Because in India, you, you really have to know the disease. Because a lot of times people will not have the money to pay for all the investigations that we do order over here in the US. Right. So, so you're talking about yeah. natural progression of disease. So somebody Correct. might present to you with blindness, but their underlying disease state may be diabetes. Correct, correct. Because so, of how, you know, because of the progression, natural progression of that disease. Exactly, yeah. Okay, so then you went to understanding obesity as a disease. You got through your residency here in the U.S. Right. You got another board certification, <laughs> paid all that money for all that stuff, and yeah. now you're practicing here. <laughs> And now, did you do a fellowship in obesity medicine or no, what so, after that? So, yeah, so obesity medicine, um, you can actually get, uh, currently it's not a full-fledged program in itself. They're still developing it because it still is in its infancy of sorts. Uh, mm-hmm. It's still, um, when I say infancy, of course, the research has been there for a very long time. Um, and there is plenty of data out there. But in terms of it being as a full-fledged program, there are a few programs that do offer fellowship, but there is also the CME route where you you kind of get trained in all of this and then uh, you uh, you have to take the exam, of course, there's a board exam and just like any specialty. And then once you clear the exam, that's when you get both certified in obesity Mm -hmm. medicine. So I did take the CME route uh, in this, and that was primarily because of, you know, the way my my visa issues and whatever are over here currently. But uh, yeah, actually, I'm in talks with people to kind of um, see if I can do that and do the fellowship part after the boards I'm already certified. So now I want to go back and do this because uh, I think that's also very important. Okay. What causes obesity? Let's start with that. (laughs) So obesity is a hormonal disease, and uh, it's primarily the, the changes that occur in our body in, with regards to our hormones that cause this. And there are certain things that go into this. For example, your gene, your, some of your genes may predispose you to having obesity, but then the environment that we are in right now, we call it the obesogenic environment. That plays mm-hmm. a big role. And what ends up happening is your hormonal milieu, because of whatever your genetic predisposition and this and that is it in conjunction with the environment causes you to have this disease of obesity. So that's putting it very simply. Okay. And so, so it's not my fault. It's my hormones fault. Awesome. I love that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I would say it's a combination of everything. Okay. I'm still going to blame it on my hormones. (laughs) And so, because what happens for women in menopause is a lot of them go about life. And all of a sudden, menopause hits, and they put on a bunch of extra weight. And that truly is hormonal weight gain. And then the big complaint is I can't shift the weight, I cannot shift the weight, and they try and try and try and try and try. 
And it's it becomes this negative spiral. And because they can't shift the weight, then they start to feel really bad about themselves and, and the negative self-talk and all of these things. And knowing that it's not their fault is really helpful, I think. And knowing that it's you know not my fault. So the next question then is, okay, so if it's not my fault, it's my hormones, what's one step I can take to kind of get over this and get get back control over it. I wish the answer was uh, as simple as just taking one step. I think it's mm-hmm. um it is very individual and that's why we have this specialty of obesity medicine right. wherein the management has to be individualized to the patient. Not it's not one size fits all. Just like with anything in medicine, you know, one drug may work for you, the other person may be allergic to that particular drug. Yeah. One type of a diet may work for you, it may not work for somebody else. But uh, usually what we see is the data that we have suggests that a low-carb diet is good, but there's also data for whole food plant-based diet that's good. And there's data for a lot of other diets that are good. And there's, a, there's data for intermittent fasting that it can work. So there's a lot of data out there. So you have to find something that you can work with. Now, a low-carb diet may work for you and it may be great for you. A ketogenic diet may be great for you. You may lose a lot of weight on a ketogenic diet. But then if you're not able to sustain it, then you're not going to be able to sustain the weight loss. And if you're not able to sustain the weight loss, if you gain the weight back, which can happen if you're not consistent with the diet, then what ends up happening is the next time you try to lose the weight, it's going to become even more difficult. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it sounds like what you're saying is that when it comes to weight loss, while there is no one size fits all answer, it's super important to choose something that you can live with for probably ever. Yes. Yeah. It's a lifelong process. Right. And, and that's why we recognize this as a chronic disease, mm-hmm. which is a big thing to understand that, you know, blaming somebody for having obesity uh, as it being their fault versus looking at it as a chronic disease somebody is suffering from are two different mindsets that, um, that we have to look at. And uh, if you look at it as a chronic disease, just like, say, diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, then it's a very different perspective of uh, how you're looking at this as a, uh, as a process that's going on and the medications you need for it. For example, somebody has high cholesterol, you don't say, well, you know, just eat less cholesterol and that's the end of it. If they still have the high cholesterol, they're on medications and they can be on medications lifelong. Mm-hmm. If somebody has had heart attack, then they're going to be on the medications lifelong. Yeah. What do you think is the role of medication when it comes to managing obesity then? So medications usually form an adjunct in the management of obesity. Okay. Um, the bedrock is really formed by the lifestyle changes, which include uh, changing the diet around and changing your exercise pattern, your physical activity, not just exercise, actually, inclu- it includes everything, your f- daily physical activity, which includes your exercise and non-exercise activity. Mm-hmm. So changing that around. And then if you're still not, if it's still not working, then we can obviously add medications to it. Now, there are specific uh, guidelines for adding medications in terms of uh, how they're approved by the FDA and this and that. But that's when we kind of add the, the medication. Sometimes you might need to add them directly if we anticipate that the patient's really not going to benefit and they've tried a lot of things already and it's not working and that's why they come to you know us as obesity physicians, then we might just start them directly on medications. So medication as an adjunct, and that's, I mean, that makes sense. What about, so we've all seen people who've had, you know, bariatric surgery, weight loss surgery, and they'll lose a lot of weight, you know, because it's restrictive and malabsorptive. And then after a few years, they start to gain all the weight back. And then you'll have these people who have like a, you know, a bypass after a band or a band over a bypass and, and all these things. Can you just speak a little bit to that and why 
we see so much failure in, yeah. you know, long-term failure uh, in that realm. So, uh, Michelle, first, I want to kind of clarify this for people that when we talk about these surgeries, we call them actually metabolic surgeries. And why we call them metabolic surgeries is because it actually does change the hormonal milieu of your body when mm-hmm. you have these uh, surgeries done. Usually now the lab band is kind of falling out of favor. Now the newest kid on the block is sleeve gastrectomy. And that is really effective. And the sleeve gastrectomy actually came from the Ruin Y procedure, which of which it was a part. And then they found that even just doing the sleeve gastrectomy in, instead of doing the whole uh, rerouting of your gut does give you great benefit. Uh, yes, uh, Ruin Y is malabsorptive, definitely, but it does change the way your hormones act. For example, we know that immediately after surgery, we see uh, in a lot of patients that their diabetes will reverse even without the weight loss. And that's just because the hormones that are acting in your body just after the surgery just change. Mm-hmm. So it's not just about it being restrictive and malabsorptive. It's a lot more than that. But yes, there are certain problems that do occur eventually in some patients, they will have weight regain. Now, even with patients who do not have surgery, who've kind of had their weight loss, either with lifestyle or with medications, we usually see the way the trend goes is usually their weight will go down, it'll hit a low point, and then does come up a little bit, slightly. That's the normal trend that we see with anything, whether it's surgery, whether it's lifestyle changes, whether it's medications, that's the usual trend we'll see. And that's called the weight plateau. Mm-hmm. So we do see that, but uh, sometimes it might be that the the person is not able to follow their diet or they're just not, you know, they're kind of letting it go. And it, it's a lot more because of the way the hormones are acting in the body at that point in time and the way their mindset is at that point in time once they've had the surgery. So that also may play a role in there. You can't really downplay the role of mindset. When it comes to any lifestyle change. I mean, if I'm motivated enough to change my body irreparably, I would want to commit to that lifestyle forever. And what what I find, and I don't know if it's, I, I don't really understand it. I think it's a psychological problem where, you know, people will have these restrictive operations or these malabsorptive operations, and then they go and eat happy meals. <laughs> Right. And, and I mean, you see it over and over and over. And that may just be the addiction of fast food. I don't really know. I want to be clear. If you're somebody who's had a weight loss operation and you've struggled with weight regain, again, it's probably not, you know, 100% your fault because you've got a hormonal problem. At the same time, what we put in our mouth is probably the most important thing. It's, it's the single most important thing that, that affects the outcome of, of our lives from how we think to what our bodies look like. And, you know, back in the day, or way, way, way back in the day, Hippocrates said, let food be thy medicine. Yeah. And the best thing that, that you can put into your mouth is a non-processed whole food. And when you start doing that and doing that regularly, there are a lot of really good things that can happen for sure, right? I think it's a little more complex because um, all of these ultra processed foods also act on addictive pathways. And so the problem is not just the fact that it's not just about the willpower. There's a lot more there because remember, there there are billions of dollars being pumped into this market, the food industry, advertising, marketing, these hyper palatable foods that we call, uh, call them or ultra processed foods as we call them. And that's primarily because the scientists behind this already know that how they act. So they do act on our uh, on our addictive pathways. And just like any addiction, the hyperpalatable foods do activate those pathways. So mm-hmm. it may not be just about controlling yourself or just about willpower. Because if that were the case, then we would talk about that for people who are suffering from alcohol addiction or say heroin addiction or any other addiction. 
Yeah, I don't think it's about willpower 100%. I didn't mean to imply that at all. It's never just about willpower. I mean, we yeah. we have, you know, there are food scientists out there that that their only job is to make the the foods at the fast food restaurants more delicious and more desirable. Of course. And they want you to be hungry in 10 minutes afterwards so that you will go and buy more. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, pressed chicken and, and weird stuff. So you're right here in your outline, you know, you want, what is this fat gene you're talking about? There are a lot of genes that have been um, identified mm -hmm. for, uh, in, which are associated with obesity. And there's really one that is the most common that is found is called the FTO gene. People may have it or may not have it. But again, it's important to understand that even if you have, say, for example, this gene, and we don't usually test for it because commonly what we see in obesity is primarily a combination of you having a predisposition for obesity and then the environment really coming into play. And the treatment ends up being controlling the environment and controlling um, with the help of medication, surgery, whatever, your internal environment as well. So even though there might be genes that are linked to it, it's important to understand that this epidemic of obesity that we've had in the last few decades, our genes have not changed in those last few decades. They've re remained sa the, the same for millennia. Mm -hmm. So that's the important part to understand. It's it, even though there may be genes associated with it, you really cannot blame it, ev blame everything onto the genes because the environment has a huge role to play here. Well, we might be switching new genes on by what we're choosing to put in our mouths by the ultra processed things that, that are available now, it might be switching it on more. And yeah, I don't know if we have the ability to see exactly what's being expressed. We only have the ability to see exactly what we have, yeah. right? So it that that's I think that's a really difficult question and a huge problem because I mean when I went to college when I did my undergrad we we didn't even have the human genome yet and now we can you know you can sequence the human human genome in a matter of a couple of weeks and <laughs> through some saliva and you can find out you know what genes you have in your genetic makeup that may or may not, you know, depending on how, how, you know, you burn carbohydrates or, or something like that. But we don't truly understand the role epigenetics plays. But what we do know is that we can change that by lifestyle, right? We can change that by meditation. We can change that by exercise. We can change that through the foods we eat. And just by thought. And that's that's under research that's ongoing in places like the HeartMath Institute and and that sort of thing, right? Yeah. So it's a difficult problem. I think, you know, it, it's not just how much you eat and how much you move. And it's not necessarily just a caloric deficit that all of these trainers and these people who look like, you know, Olympian goddesses <laughs> and gods uh, on Instagram, it's very, very different. There is a complex way of, you know, making things happen. And so if it's an individualized, which it is, right, because everybody has a unique set of genes, but there are a few things that that can, you know, work in general. And so what do you recommend in like in general without, you know, going into obviously this is not a medical discussion in the sense that I don't want you to consider this as medical advice, but just something in general that that someone could change so that, you know, they could take away from this interview and say, right. I'm going to try this. I think the first thing would be to try and that's what I tell everybody is try and eliminate as much of added sugar as possible. Uh. Right. The one thing that you can do, actually, the two things that you can do are try and shop around the periphery of the grocery store because you'll find most of the natural products around the around the peripheries. Yeah. The second thing is if you're buying something packaged, just look for if it has anything, if it what it says uh, next to added sugar. 
it should say zero grams. Now, zero grams does not necessarily mean it's zero grams, but it's at least going to be going to be a small fraction. It's not. It's going to be less than one gram. Yeah. So just make sure you uh, look at that and that. I think that's the first step that I would recommend that people do because really we are trying to aim towards moving towards a whole more of more of a whole food kind of a diet. And no matter what type of a meal plan you eventually end up choosing, whether it's uh, whole food plant based, whether it's ketogenic, whether it's low carb, a lot of people do well on low carb, but it should be whole foods. It should be real food that you can mm. recognize. Yeah. So what do you think protein powder and, and all of that? So yeah, that's interesting because when we talk about protein powder, or when we talk about meal replacements, meal replacements, there's good data to support uh, the use of meal replacements for management of obesity. And the reason being that they do tend to take out a lot of the confusion and a lot of the indecision that goes into th- that particular meal. Usually, you know, if you're in the office and you're busy and you're scrambling for things and you don't know what you're going to be having for lunch, you might just end up picking something random that you find on the way. If you have a packet of that meal replacement in with you, you know that there's something that you have and you just open the packet and you make a meal replacement shake or whatever, and then you're good to go. So they do. So there is data to support the use of meal replacements for weight loss. But again, it has to be what works for you and if you like it or not like it. Some people don't like it. Some people just want to be you know, doing real food and that's fine. And some people are doing great on meal replacements and they want to be able to replace their meals with this meal replacement because it really fits into their lifestyle. And that's mm-hmm. great too. That is really counterintuitive to the whole idea of whole foods because that's highly processed stuff that may have added sugar and especially seed oils, which we haven't even talked about yet. And seed oils like canola, and it doesn't matter where it comes from, you know, like speller pressed or not, sunflower oils, cottonseed oils, those, those things, they're really bad. They're, they're pro-inflammatory. They cause all sorts of havoc in, in our hormones and you know, when our hormones come from fats and when we're eating bad fats as the primary basis, then our hormones are going to get kind of out of whack. And so, you know, in addition to saying cut out sugar and all forms of added sugar, I, I like to tell people to, you know, if, you, if you're going to do one thing, it's sugar and vegetable oil. And if you go to just natural oils and, and the, the rule of thumb is that nature doesn't make bad fats <laughs> and, and just eat natural fats, things that come from nature, like you know, palm oil, coconut oil, olive oil, those sorts of things, you're going to find that you start to feel better. But it's more expensive because these seed oils are manufactured and they cost, you know, they're cheap and they're, they're flavorless. So um, I don't know what your experience is with seed oil. I think, I think the whole fat conundrum is still, it. I mean, it's still a big topic of debate in terms of what's, what you should have and what you should not have. I mean, on the one hand, if you talk about whole food plant-based diet, then really, if you look at the fats, the processed, uh, any kind of oil, whether it's olive oil, whether it's uh, avocado oil, whether it's whatever oil, at the end of the day, it's kind of like an analog of um, sugar for fat, right? It's a refined product that's not available. You can't go and uh, basically get oil off the tree. You really have to kind of process the food in one form or the other. Even if it's olive oil, you have to really crush the olives, get the olive oil, extract the olive oil out of it. So in one form, it's kind of like a refined form of that food. So if you look at it from that perspective, yeah, it's not it's not a whole food. But having said that, there is data to support using the unsaturated, polyunsaturated, monounsaturated fats, oversaturated fats with regards to your cardiovascular health overall. Mm-hmm. So it's still not very clear. So what I would say is that 
yes, you may be okay using fats, but try to limit it. Yeah, see, I'm not on that. I don't believe that at all. That's where diet is. Food science has been so mired in industry and industry beliefs and industry gain, right? And so, you know, somebody somebody says, you know, lower, you know, lower the fat intake. And fats, of course, have more calories. But if you don't have good building blocks for your hormones, you're not going to have good hormones. And so I it's hard because of the the belief that that came with Ansel Keys. Yeah. And when Ansel the Keys did his, did his seven country study, <laughs> yeah, which, was, which was completely, completely flawed, not a real study. And he wasn't even a food scientist. He studied eels. So not a real guy, not a, not a real scientist. And I mean, but there, there is a lot of data to support uh, the fact that, that seed oils are, are pro-inflammatory. And so uh, I, if, if you take nothing else away from this podcast, make sure that you really start looking for things like sunflower oil and canola oil and, and these highly processed oils, because part of the process of creating these oils is that they, they go through a plastic process, they become solid, and then they become liquid again and in the way that they're through the hydrogenation process. So those are really, really horrible, horrible oils. And then when it comes to like regular oils, again, nature doesn't make bad fats. So if you want to, you know, use beef tallow and lard and bacon grease and, and things like that, you know, I mean, I grew up with that. I grew up with that right. and I never had an obesity problem. It wasn't until, I mean, I gained weight with my son and then I just never really lost it. Right. I don't think it's the fats that are, I know, which was initially what was uh, portrayed was that fats are causing all the, the obesity problem. Then this yeah. and that. I don't think it's necessarily the fats that are causing um, the obesity problem. And I don't think it's fair to pinpoint to one particular macronutrient. The problem that happens with the nutritional sciences is the fact that it's very hard to do actually a good study on this. Put somebody on a diet and it's a change in their lifestyle for us. You can only do it for a short amount of time. People are going to always move back to their original way. And then again, monitoring it, knowing exactly what they're doing is very difficult. So yeah. in all fairness, doing any study in nutritional sciences is, is difficult and it's going to be fraught with these challenges. The other aspect is also the fact that, you know, when you start looking at macronutrients in there, just looking at the macronutrients in the, in the food pro product that you're eating, you're really taking away all the other stuff that's in the food. And just concentrating on the macronutrient is also not fair to that food product that you're eating. Yeah, that makes sense. We've all seen, you know, this big weight loss that can happen from a program like The Biggest Loser. And in the aftermath of The Biggest Loser, we see that these people who have gone through it and had this really, really restrictive diet, you know, maybe 800 to 1000 calories, plus tons and tons of exercise, you know, a lot of them weren't able to sustain that. And then when they came home, if they went back to eating even something like 1500 calories, they gained a lot of weight. Can you just speak a little bit to the role metabolism plays and weight loss? So absolutely. I think with any, it's important to understand with any weight loss, whether you choose whatever kind of a diet, you're going to have a slowing of your metabolism regardless. So as you gain the weight, your metabolism does come up. The problem occurs that once you slow the metabolism down and you gain the weight back, it doesn't come back all the way up. So what ends up happening is, is that there's a deficit that's always going to be there. So the next time you try to lose the weight, it's going to be harder to lose the weight. And that's why yo-yo dieting is really not 
not good for you because each time you lose the weight and you gain it again it's going to be difficult to lose it again the next time and that's because your metabolism has slowed down so so that does play a role here so if somebody wants to change their lifestyle because they really want to lose weight but they love pizza <laughs> say I love pizza. <laughs> yeah. So what, how do you, I mean, I don't want to leave this podcast with people thinking that, that it's hopeless, right? No, of course not. So I want to, I mean, how often do you have pizza? Probably once a week. Okay. You once a week. And do you eat as much pizza as you used to? So what I try to do is I try to make my pizza at home. Okay. That's the one thing that I do because I really enjoy cooking. So that's the important thing that I try to impress upon people also is the fact that if you start cooking yourself, there are two things that are going to happen. One is that if it's going to be a very complicated thing like making pizza, which is not easy because you have to make knead the dough, ferment it, mm. wait for it to rise, and then you kind of bake it and this and that, you're not going to be doing it every day. Ordering it from outside is so easy. You just, just yeah. click on your phone and that's it, right? So that's one thing. The second thing is I can control what goes into my pizza completely right from the beginning. So I take control over what I'm going to put into my pizza. So I know exactly what's going in there. I know exactly what's going in my marinara sauce. I know exactly what's going into the dough. I know exactly how much of whole wheat I'm adding or I'm adding refined flour or not adding it. So I, I am in control of that. That's great. That's really good. Was there anything else you were hoping to kind of share with the audience today? No, I think uh, we've covered some great ground today. Yeah. I think uh, what I what I do want to just uh, let the audience know is that I do have a podcast on um, on this called Decoding Obesity. And really why I started that podcast was because of this reason. What's it called? Decoding Obesity. Decoding Obesity. So you can get you can find him on the Decoding Obesity podcast. Where else can people find you? Um, they can go to my website, www.decodingobesity.com. That's the same name as the podcast. Decodingobesity.com. That's amazing. So it's been really great talking to you today. And, and I appreciate you coming on and being a part of the menopause movement. I, I think that um, I'm hoping that we get a lot of questions based on this and we can have you back to answer them. Absolutely. I would love to. All right. Well, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Michelle. Did you know that menopause is not a medical condition? Most doctors don't know this either. I like to say that menopause is the privilege of a long life, and to really take hold of our lives in menopause, we have to unlearn what society and the medical establishment has told us about menopause. This is why I've created this brand new course called Understanding Your Hormones and Managing Your Menopause. I want to show you how you can get on top of your menopause right now so that you can start to see it as the best time of your life. Now, this course is valued at $500 and is in the beta testing phase. And we're currently accepting applications for women to test it out for us at no charge in exchange for feedback and testimonials. But the best part is because you're a podcast listener, you can bypass the application process and go straight to the front of the line. To register right now, simply visit menopausemovement.com forward slash hormones and we can get started together right now. Remember, you can get started right now at no charge to you in exchange for feedback and testimonials when you go to menopausemovement.com forward slash hormones, and I'll see you inside the course. Thanks so much for being a part of the menopause movement.